we have just gone through a tsunami. We have just gone through a massive economic event back in, in, in the pandemic. And that massive economic event was compounded by another massive economic event, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And as a result, these shockwaves are floating back and forth through the global economy, up and down, and some really, really weird stuff went on and is still going on that we have literally not seen since the beginning of World War II. We have just not seen this level of major economic shift occur. Once more under the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. And we're back, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, with another exciting second hour of Economic Strivel with the personal wealth coach. Oh, with Jake and... Jeff McClure. McClure. Yes, and we yes. can say our names together with prompting. Speaking of polarization, there is, a, there is a great polarization among economists and pundits about which way the economy is going. Are we headed for sustained growth or are we headed into a recession? And if you're following the information that comes out, the data, and we publish in the newsletter, and I could bore people to tears and have people running off the highway be giving all that data again. Suffice to say, there are the, the data are conflicting. And by the way, data is plural, so it is proper to say are, not is. Unless you're talking about Star Trek, and then it's he. He is data, or data. Yes, but he never... He's data, which is different from data. Right. Okay. So right. data not being data. Go ahead. Data doesn't conflict. Anyway, there are indicators that in a normal environment, a normal economic environment, the environment we have seen for decades, would indicate that we are headed full speed into a recession, and it's probably going to be a big one. For example, the inverted yield curve. Another example is housing starts, which have fallen off 9.6% in a month. That's, um, that's rather large. That is big. And historically, housing starts are an indicator of where the economy is going. When people stop buying houses, people stop, and, and builders stop building houses, they lay off a lot of people. And those lot of people don't get to buy things anymore and they can't find jobs. And that starts things downhill in a hurry. And it is associated with rising interest rates, which the mortgage rate has way more than doubled in a year. And as a result, the housing market is starting to cool off. And that used to be a sign that we were headed for a recession. It's not necessarily true right now. Because on the other hand, we look at durable goods orders and durable goods capital orders, which are a strong indication of which way the economy is going. What's a durable good capital order? That means a business is ordering something that's going to be around for at least five years. Yeah, that's a big deal. It's like a big piece of equipment to help them make more stuff to sell you. That's a really and good thing for profit long term. Durable goods capital orders are up like 14% in a month. Wow. That indicates we're headed into a boom. So we got big rocking and rolling economy. Conflicting, we majorly have, conflicting signals here. We have uh, deliveries up. We have backlogs for manufacturers up. We have wages rising only 0.2% for the month, which is certainly an acceptable amount, but they're still rising. We have a record, near record number of new jobs 
filled, created and filled in the last month. These are all indications that the economy is headed into a boom. It is. These are the kind of things we see as we come out of a recession. We have some signals that says we're headed into a recession. We have other signals that say we're headed out of a recession in a big hurry. And they're horribly conflicting. Probably the single most profound indicator was released by the, I think it was, was it the Labor Department that does GDP? Commerce or is it the Commerce, the Commerce, Commerce Department. Department. Bureau of Economic uh, Analysis at the Commerce Department, yeah. They come out with a GDP first estimate, which was that the in the second quarter, the United States economy was down on an annualized basis. Notice it wasn't down for the quarter. You can divide this by four and get a pretty accurate number. But on an annualized basis, if you if we went that way for the full year, the economy contracted in the second quarter by 0.9%. Then they have revised that now to to in their second estimate to 0.6% on an annualized basis, which is means means we're not really falling very fast. But at the same time, in the second estimate, they released something called GDI, the gross domestic income, which I refer to as the common sense GDP. Yeah. It is it's a much more it's the, related to what people are actually making as far as increased income, inflation right. adjusted. This is what we're supposed to be it pulls out import and export and the deficit of the government. And it also pulls out the uh, inventory buildup or shrinkage. What it, what it boils down to is our companies in the second quarter did people doing business in the United States, either as corporations or as individuals, make more or less money after subtracting inflation? And the answer is, on an annualized basis, the economy on that, looking at that, is was rising at a 1.4% rate in the second quarter, which and is sustainable and good and healthy. Do you mind and if I just throw in two more or three more data points very quickly and then hand it, because these are just going to support you on this. The income that, that's being measured here in GDI, it's pretty easy to find some corroboration to that. If you look at the tax revenue to the states and to the federal government and at the local level, across the country. Most of this, most of their taxes come from income and sales. If income goes up, they make more money. If sales go up, they make more money. The United States government this month, July, the, the latest data they have, made about $7 billion more than the same month last year. However, for the year, year to date, okay. year, to date. year to date, the federal government has received $787 billion more in revenue than it did over the same period last year. We had a 40%, 41% increase in individual taxes. Um, corporate taxes are up 11%, 26% up in Federal Reserve earnings. So all of this stuff coming into the government is not coming from people losing their job or losing their income. Uh, when we look at states uh, in Texas, everywhere in the United States, most of the states have a massive surplus. Massachusetts is about to have to turn around and refund its citizens a large amount of money. About $3 billion, 7% of its overall revenue is going to go back out. Because they have a quirky law in their constitution that says if they pull in way too much money, they need to give it back. 
So those are some real quick points to say there's a boom going on in income that has some important aspects in play here. Okay, now go back to you. It's different this time. It really is. Let me explain why. All these tea leaves that economists read to determine which way the economy is likely to go in the near future and which way it's going now are based on a near steady state economy where very small fluctuations, if the economy is right at the balance, which is where it normally is, a small fluctuation that persists over a couple of months has a big meaning. However, we have just gone through a tsunami. We have just gone through a massive economic event back in, in, in the pandemic. And that massive economic event was compounded by another massive economic event, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And as a result, these shock waves are floating back and forth through the global economy, up and down, and some really, really weird stuff went on and is still going on that we have literally not seen since the beginning of World War II. We have just not seen this level of major economic shift occur in a really long time. There are no people who are out there working professionally in the investment business or in the economics business who were alive and, and in the business when it happened the last time around. You, this, you, you used a metaphor earlier. I, I will, I'll get to that. I think it's a great it's like, one. It's like there was a sudden traffic stop and you're late and you've been sitting there in the traffic jam and the traffic opens up and you start down the highway where the speed limit is 70 at 100 miles an hour. And you don't realize you've gotten to 100 miles an hour until you look down and say, whoa, if I get a ticket of this, it's really going to mess me up. If I have an accident, this is really going to mess me up. And you start letting off on the accelerator and you start slowing down. Well, the rest of the traffic is slowing down, too. So you start to slow down and you drop all the way back through 70 to 65. In other words, you've dropped 45 miles an hour in a very short period of time. Now, if you've been cruising along at 70, normally the speed limit is 70 and you drop 45 miles an hour off of that there is something seriously wrong with your car and you are creating a traffic hazard and this is a bona fide emergency turn your flashers on and get off the road but if you drop 45 miles an hour or if you drop 40 miles an hour or 45 miles an hour from 100 no, you're just getting back to normal. And you may slow down a little more than you want to, and then you'll speed back up again. 35 to, to 65. So okay, it's 35. 30, so you drop 35 miles an hour. Okay, you drop 35 miles an hour from 70. You're doing 35 miles an hour on an interstate, which means you're a traffic hazard. And if you can't go faster than 35 miles an hour, there's something seriously wrong with your car. Get off the road. You have an emergency. If you're going 100 and you drop 35 miles an hour, that's a completely different issue you might the still United be a States. traffic hazard if everybody else is trying to drive fast but right. everybody else is slowing down at the same time we have an economy that first ground to a severe recession severe but very short recession and then re-accelerated out of that because of its reserves to an unsustainable rate of speed and is now slowing back down to a sustainable rate of speed it, we ain't there yet it's like we're still doing 80 now this is this is echoing back and forth, and it's, it is compounded by the fact, for example, in Great Britain, they're expecting 18 to 20% inflation in the near future. Whoa. Europe is sliding into recession fast, and there's double reason. One, they do a lot of business with China, and China is probably going to go into recession. And the big one is the fact that Russia invaded Ukraine, which we don't feel the pain of 
anywhere nearly as much. In the United States. <laughs> yeah, anywhere near as high as what they're feeling over there. The Europeans are, it is the equivalent of the southwestern United States, everything that used to be part of Mexico suddenly being gone in the United States and hostile because Europe got most of its petroleum from Russia. Europe does tremendous amount of trade with Russia and China. China is slipping into recession. Russia is becoming the enemy. It is causing a huge effect. Now, what's that got to do with us? We do a lot of business with Europe in the United States. We get things from Europe. We uh, sell things to Europe. We get things from China. We sell things from China to, to China. And this is causing a whiplash effect through the economy. And it is really hard to tell what the future is going to hold. I can say that you should be very thankful that you live in the United States of America right now. Yeah. To give you an example. Presuming you do, because we have listeners in other countries. <laughs> if you live in the United States, you are in the sweet spot, let me tell you. To give you an example, I well remember when it took a dollar and 40 cents to buy a euro. Right now. It wasn't that long ago. The euro is 99.66 cents. You can basically it's on it's on par with the dollar. You can I, go, I don't have any point six six cents any around. I don't I need to well, get some. Yes. But if you went to Europe right now, the dollar is basically one euro. And from all I have been able to find, I, I just read some anecdotal information. If you visit the United Kingdom, they actually prefer to receive dollars than pounds. Keep your keep your American money, folks, for the Amer for America did rise again. We are uh, whether or not people like the United States, they love the dollar right now. Yeah, let's talk about inflation, if you don't mind, for a second. Wait a minute. If We're going to change the subject from inflation to inflation. Yes. Let's talk about inflation just a second. Okay. We I talked about earlier the gross domestic product of the United States and the gross domestic income have split and gone in different directions. And Let, Let's explain what those two things are again real I'm, quick. I'm going to. Okay, Gross right. domestic product is the government's measure of how fast the economy is growing. It has artificially in artificial items stuck in it that we think probably ought not to be there. One of the big ones is the trade deficit, which we don't think exists. Um, or at least not in the context it's given. And there's a second number in the gross domestic product that is probably inaccurate, and that's inflation. This consumer price index is not accurate. Why is it not accurate? Well, there's a host of reasons, but one of the biggest ones, and, I, and, I, and I've emphasized this before, but I'm going to say it again. It includes as a major component the rental value of the house that a person owns. In other words, you live in a house, you got it, whether you're making a house payment or not, you own the house. And the rental value of your personal house that you're not renting out or paying rent on is part of the consumer price index, which is silly. Yeah, uh, it, it doesn't make any sense. Another, another now, factor in here is government spending is considered in the same way that earnings to corporations are. Very different thing. This is not growth in the economy. Government spending is not growth in the economy, it's government spending. It's a different thing, and it shouldn't be part of, of measuring growth. Okay, go so, ahead. On the other hand, if you look at, and, and, and people don't look at it very often because it doesn't come out until, well, the, one, the second quarter's GDI, gross domestic income, was just announced this week. Well, the, what is this? Estimate for the second. What gross is this domestic thing? income is the amount of money, the, pro the profit or income that people have in the United States, corporations and people. How much money did you make? In other words, 
Uh, a corporation has a whole bunch of money floating around, but it had a profit at the for the quarter of a certain amount. You went to work and you made money, and so you have income. And the amount of income being generated in the economy is GDI, which is the real growth in the economy. I mean, if, if there's more income being made, in the, by the way, they subtract inflation out of that too, which means it's probably higher than it appears to be. Now, let's come around to the inflation issue. There are two major measures of inflation, and the one that the Federal Reserve pays far more attention to is called PCE, Personal Consumption Expenditures. What is the difference between what the see uh, the consumer price index and personal consumption expenditures? By the way, the PCE comes out much later than the than the than the other one than the than the CPI, and so people don't pay a lot of attention to it. One the reason it comes out later is the first thing the uh, I think it's the Labor Department does that one. Anyway, um, I get those mixed up. the 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 numbers that comes out first, they have to figure out where people spent their money what they were buying. And then they looked at the price for what they were buying, not a fixed basket of goods and services that they may not have bought that somebody created years ago and said, this is what people are buying and selling. The, that's the, all, it's, that is the, also not, that's, it's the Commerce Department, PEA. Okay, it's the Commerce Department. It comes out and says, here's what people actually paid for what they actually bought. And was it higher or lower than it was last quarter? Not what they paid, what they didn't pay for something they didn't buy, but if they had bought it, it would have been higher or lower, which does, which yeah, that's CPI. So if you look at the PCE for the month of July, in other words, from June to July, we didn't have inflation. We had one tenth of 1% of deflation. A big chunk of that was fuel. Okay. So if we take the cost of gasoline and diesel out of that, or fuel in general out of that, and you get a core PCE, it rose 0.2%, or in other words, inflation, according to the PCE, not counting fuel, is running at 2.4% a year, which is just about what the Federal Reserve wants it to do. If you count the price of fuel, and I think it's a good idea in this particular case to count the price of fuel because I think it's important, it actually fell one-tenth of 1%. In other words, it very well may be that our inflation surge is over. Now, at the same time, incomes income in the United States rose 0.2%. So it's rising at about the same rate as the real inflation, including not counting fuel. That indicates we're back on stable terrain. I, and I'm, the Federal Reserve may only need to raise rates to the neutral point and maybe a little further, which would indicate that we probably wouldn't have a recession. And to come in here and tie two subjects together, what we were talking about at the end of last, where you were talking about at the end of last hour, were very, very fascinating stuff about why we have such massively conflicting data in the markets and in the economy. We've got data on a leading indica indicator for the economy, leading economic indicators, one in the in the in the things that we put together to say what what does this say about the future. Housing starts dropped more than 9% for a month. But at the same time, capital good orders at companies that are manufacturing stuff jumped 14%. That's also a very strong leading economic indicator. That's I, That was an error on my part. They jumped 2.8%. I'm sorry. Is that annualized? Non-defense new orders for capital goods in July increased 2.8%. I just okay. missed that so number. Call it 3%. That's a massive up. 
that's, uh, a whole, that's a whole bunch. A, a whole bunch. And when we say 14%, those are the numbers that like we saw last year at this point, uh, leading numbers. Those, those orders went skyrocketing. So this year we're seeing a 3% jump, well, slightly rounded up. What is the difference? What are these, why are these numbers so far different from each other? If, and normally, as you were saying, we have this kind of, imagine a still lake, if you will. We're going to mix metaphors from the highway to a lake. This is kind of a steady state economy. There's a slight current to that lake, um, but we're measuring all the little ripples in the, in the lake to say, what does this mean for turbulence in the future? And then we had this massive splash, followed by a second massive splash. The first massive splash was far bigger than the second one, but the second one is measured in like once in 80-year type numbers. The big one was once in multiple hundreds of years. This massive splash, some big impact hit the lake. Well, all our little ripple indicators are getting ripples back and forth from these central splashes. And if you imagine those ripples up and down where the government reacted, so did a lot of other people. Insurance companies reacted by dumping money into places. The United States citizens reacted by dumping money into the economy, into the market to say, hey, I want to buy this stuff. It's still valuable. And so we're still getting these massive ripples back and forth. The prices of things have changed a lot because the way we ship stuff has massively changed because everybody stopped for a while. We had a recession that is a much, much shorter, but also much, much more severe than anything we've measured since the beginning of World War II, where everybody stopped. About a third of our economy just stopped just went away. That's really hard to measure other periods of that. So there's this big reaction of dumping in capital into the markets, dumping cash into people's hands to get us out of this hole. And that caused, if you will, steroids to go into the lake. Now we're going to mix metaphors because that's what we're famous for. And the uh, nitrous was added into the gas tank of the vehicles on the highway. We are all going 100 miles an hour now. Uh, and this, we, the, the access to the things that we used to buy got limited at the same time that we wanted more of it than we ever have before. That caused prices to go crazy. It caused us to say, hey, I want a house. There's not enough houses around. I'm going to bid these prices up. And the money was cheap to do it with. So now the handbrake's going into the lake. I'm mixing the metaphor. Wait, that's the highway metaphor. Okay. Uh, the ripples are calming down and maybe a big net has been cast over the lake to help calm the ripples. Now we're really stretching these metaphors. When that happens, they cause their own ripples. So raising interest rates causes housing starts to drop because they just suddenly got more expensive to own. Uh, raising interest rates makes it harder for businesses to get short-term loans so that they can hire new people or train new people. And at the same time, productivity is dropping because we have all these new hires that don't know what they're doing yet. So you add this all together with inflation, which when we say, hey, is it done or not? We're going to see ripples of up and down for a while, but it's going to be calming unless we can get another big shock. The big shocks that we got were so big that what we would normally say a big shock would have pretty little effect. 
on what's going on on these ripples up and down in prices as they're equalizing out and the Federal Reserve is out there really clamping down on some areas, really hard clamping down. The housing market, you can point right back to the Fed and say this is caused by them because interest rates are up and that means it's more expensive to own a house. All of this is why you have brakes in your car because if you look up and you see you're going 100 miles an hour and you say this is not sustainable, things are going to go badly if I continue this. And you look around and somebody, everybody else is doing it too. So you start applying the brakes and at some point the handbrake is getting put on and we want to make sure that it's not cranked back too hard or the car spins out of control. It's not probably a good idea to use a handbrake when you're going 100 miles an hour, but if your other brakes aren't working very well, you crank that brake a little bit. So that's what we're seeing. Go ahead. I want to add somebody that something that will probably run our listeners off. Okay, let's do that. As as if the mixed metaphors haven't, the lake in the highway with the net on the handbrake. It's just tongue. Go ahead. There's a big lesson to be learned in Brexit. The British mythology, which Prime Minister Johnson advocated, was that if Great Britain separated itself, the United Kingdom separated itself from the European Union, everything would be better. Uh, They would be able to set their own course They'd be able to have great prosperity. They would, without all the regulations and without all the interference from the European Union and the standards and the and the rules and and everything else. And uh, there was a referendum, and a only a small percentage of the population voted, relatively speaking. But fifty one percent of that small percentage said, "Yeah, let's bail." So they did. They seceded, and they are currently in an absolute world of hurt. They did a lot of business with the rest of the continent, and the theory was it would be able to be continued, but it hasn't. Because in order, if you, it's it's like the people who suggest that Texas should separate from the United States. Yeah, the the trade disputes One, are are just the mi- most minor of issues that would come up there. The the issue is that Texas is integrated into the United States, and we don't we couldn't survive without the United rest of the United States as we'd be a third world. P. Dunklin little country. You look at our GDP of Texas and it's tremendous, but it's not just in Texas. It depends on us being integrated with the rest of the United States. And the disengagement that was that is favored by some people still of the United States from the world would impoverish the United States. It would impoverish the world. Yes, we don't have a huge export generated economy, but a tremendous amount of the reason that we have a much higher standard of living in the United States than we had 20, 30, and 50 years ago, we have a hugely higher standard of living, is because we buy a lot of things very in, that are made very inexpensively somewhere else. So the same amount of money buys more stuff. The same amount of money, uh, the, something small that I like to, to point out. During the winter, you expect to be able to go to the grocery store and buy fresh fruits and vegetables and flowers. A lot of that comes from outside the United States because it ain't winter in the Southern Hemisphere. I'm in the process of buying a vehicle that I ordered two years ago. The vehicle has a Mercedes chassis and it is very highly regarded across the board. It's made, the, the chassis is made in Germany. The top, it's it's a very small motorhome. It's called a Class B+. Plus. The top of the thing is made in Canada. Does that mean it's evil? No, because if you look Wait a minute. At where the components oh, oh, right. come from. Does that mean it's evil? What are you are you talking about Germany and 
Canada being an axis of evil. I understand something now. like. But you look at where the components come from, and a lot of them come from the United States. And we export a lot of stuff to Canada. They buy a lot of things from us. We buy a lot of things from them. Um, if you go to buy a car, there's a pretty good chance any car, a very significant portion of it is made outside the United States, and it's made less expensively that way. So the car, instead of costing $100,000, costs $35,000. These are critical issues. And there is always the tendency to say we could go it alone and be better and not have anything to do with the rest of the world. It isn't true. The world has integrated. We need each other. We need to support each other. And we need to move forward, just like in the United States, a uh, uh, hundred and some years ago, uh, back in 1860, I guess it's about 150 years ago now, 152 years ago, the South decided it could do just fine without the North. Well, it couldn't. E the, the Civil War was lost primarily because the economy of the South could not support itself. The separate states treated themselves like they were separate countries, which they were originally before the Constitution, and they were no longer wanted to be interdependent and there were their economies were collapsing because of a lack of trade with the north and we learned a very harsh and hard lesson there and we don't need to play it again with the rest of the world integration needs to move carefully by the way i'm going to say the let me say the backside of that really quickly united states companies this year are on the way to onshoring 350,000 jobs let me say that again in the fiscal year is we're coming up on the end of the fiscal year for the United States government, and that's where it's being measured. Three hundred and the one of the reasons the op the job openings in the United States are, have remained so high compared with the number of people who need a job is because we are bringing a lot of things home. We went too far in globalization, and now we're coming back. And I think that's really really healthy. But I just wanted to know this year we'll break all records for on onshoring jobs in the United States. So there's two sides of this story, obviously. And let me let me kind of lay that out in an even broader historical context than just the secession of states. Let's go back to what was feudalism, you know, the manor, the manor house. It was, it was the concept that you can grow everything that you need, you can manufacture everything that you need in one spot. And that era was called the Dark Ages for a reason because people were far more limited in their diet and in what they had available for convenience than in times with greater trade. So technology from that point, technology that, in, that decreases costs for people and increases the quality of life has been related to solely really one thing, better communication and transport of goods so that you had access to greater people, to more people to sell to, and more people to buy from. Because we don't make it all, no matter what it is. Whether it's uranium or nickel or whatever it is, it's not possible for us to be self-sufficient on everything. Now, when it comes to manufacturing, we're by far the top quality manufacturer on the planet in the United States. The folks in Japan and in Germany and can, can argue with that, but really what it comes down to is if you look at what people are willing to pay for 
things that are manufactured in different areas. There are absolutely things in Japan and in Germany that are at higher demand than the same things in the United States. But when you add it all together, universally, United States tends to make stuff better. They're more productive. They're higher quality. That comes across in the price. And as long as American workers at the highest pay of the world are responsible for making a product, the product was more expensive. So we started saying, hey, people like it if the prices are lower for some reason. So we're going to outsource some of this stuff. We're going to outsource our call centers. We're going to outsource our manufacturing of clothing and of steel and of all these other things. But innovation has continued in the United States. So now much of that outsourcing is coming back because we're changing how we make stuff. We're automating it more. And this is something Old Baldy has said throughout his career. By the time we outsource the manufacturing of the items that we make here in the United States and we say, hey, we don't need to make them here anymore. It's cheaper to do it elsewhere. The thing that replaces them is already in the works. Like we don't make any large cabinet televisions anymore. And Curtis Mathis was a big one. You know, they used to make these large cabinet pieces of furniture that had tubes inside them. And it was a really expensive. VCRs were made in the United States until they got outsourced to Japan just in time for DVD players to come in. And then they got outsourced to Japan just in time for us to and South Korea and just in time for us to go fully digital. We've been outsourcing our chip manufacturing because it takes a lot of highly trained people using their hands very carefully um, and then eventually using machines with their hands very carefully until now it's a lot more automated and mostly the machines are doing it themselves. That's why it's onshoring back to us. We have the highest quality workforce in the pl on the planet, but you pay for it. And if we can increase our productivity again and again and again, we're going to see an productivity explosion, by the way, with that onshoring, because the number of hours worked to create something by people is going to decrease drastically. It'll be done much, much faster per person because much more of it will be automated. And you can look at Tesla and SpaceX for direct representations of that, fully automated. Now, their expense is crazy. Uh, and, and we're about out of time. This is the Personal Wealth Coach with Jeff and Jake McClure. Uh, this is the personal wealth coach, and we do make uh, other statements than really bad puns about songs. Uh, we are uh, a, a finance program, as you would probably guess from the personal wealth coach being our title. The personal wealth coach is not just the title of the program. It's also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm. All right. Well, does that mean that the SEC likes us? What would you say to that, sir? I would say that the SEC is professionally dislikes almost everyone. Right. That is no implication of the SEC's approval just because we're registered with them. Why is the radio program and the firm named the same thing? Because we have to give this disclosure no matter what it is, and it's less disclosurable. It takes less time to do if it's just the same name. So we've been doing this program here uh, on this in, on this station, fourteen hundred AM in Temple, since nineteen ninety six, we've been doing this a long time, and we haven't been paid for it ever. Uh, we also Man. have not ever paid for it, so we've been doing this a long, long time. And the whole idea is education. 
we do advertise as a firm for on the studio, uh, on the channel for this radio program. We don't actually advertise for our firm. We're advertising for the radio program. So what we're saying is that this is educational and we do occasionally get business from it, but our purpose here is truly education. That being said, it's not advice. Advice would be if I knew who you were, if the other bald guy, Jeff, knew who you were, and we were able to have a private conversation with you about things in your best interest versus broadcasting to everyone. So we're going to be talking about education, which is why we do the program to begin with. So those two disclosures are really one. And having said that, do you deem to tell us another disclosure? Yes. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And he really can't get through the week without that. I think right. uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually, uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve. That's generally and portfolio management and portfolio management. And that's generally for people with higher net worths, but we make exceptions occasionally. Um, and so you can contact us locally voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people, no phone tree during the week at two, five, four, nine, four, seven, 11, 11. You can reach that line tool free at one, eight hundred nine, one, four, seven, five, two, six. That's eight hundred nine, fourteen plan. And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients. Right. Exactly. Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. You can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades, uh, and you can find us wherever podcasts are given. Um, thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.